0: dead people alive (laughs) that's us you have the supernatural ability through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the everlasting work of the spirit to uh, breathe life into us and make us alive and that causes us to rejoice over your works and we thank you we thank you that you could store within us a love for you a love for your word a love for the church, and also a love for dying people. So help us live out the gospel, Lord. Help us live out the gospel. And Lord, as we turn our attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, may we learn from the past. May we see the examples of those who had so much grace put on their life and yet in the end died in the wilderness. God, teach us great things. Cause us to understand if our faith is from you or is it from ourselves today. Lord, give us strength to apply these truths, to live for you, to be joyful Christians in a very dark world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Allred Noble was a man who was born in 1833. He died in 1896. He was first known because... He created dynamite. His father had created many explosive materials, but they were so hard to handle, people died from them, and even his own brother was killed by some of those things. He worked very hard to develop something that could be handled so they could mine and blow up stumps and things like that, and that's where dynamite came. But soon it fell into the hands of war, and we know this. And throughout even the Civil War, dynamite was used and really was tragic as it tore the flesh and victims apart as it exploded. Noble was charged with a merchant of death. That's what his title was given. He spent the rest of his life wanting people to learn from what he called his mistakes. An example... And so he began to fund a fund where he would honor people who would do something that would better society, and now we have what's called the Nobel Prize from that. He wanted to correct some things that he thought was a mistake of how they got handled. Well, notice in our text, verse 11 and, excuse me, verse 6 and verse 11. Notice that it says these. Now these things have happened as an example for us. That's verse 6, verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instructions. title of my sermon is The Grace of God Warns. The grace of God that warns. God's grace is here this morning, not only for our salvation as he has not only saved us, keeps us saved, but his grace also warns us, and this passage is a great warning. Paul has completed his exposition on a love for the gospel that does not cause others to stumble. We've seen that in chapter 9. Do you love the gospel, and do you love the gospel enough not to hurt someone else intentionally? He concluded the chapter with this strong plea, and I preached this at the seminary graduation, at the end of chapter 9, that the Corinthians and the, and the, and the Christian today should run in a way to win the prize. And that prize, that prize has always been the upward calling of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means there's a pursuit There's a pursuit of the full transformation that takes place in a believer's life as God continues to transform us into the image of Christ, and he brings us into that likeness as we pass from this life to the next. Paul said in Philippians 3.14, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ. Christ. The Apostle Paul has used imagery of himself running. He's used imagery of himself fighting in this closing verses of chapter 9. All to show that the believer exercises self-control so he is not disqualified. There's a result to the gospel, brothers and sisters. It isn't, oh, hey, great, I don't get to go to hell, live any way I want. That'll surefire show you that you have a man-centered faith, not one from God. He pleads He pleads here at the end of the text that the Christian should run the race vigorously. You ever see, you, know, a marathon in an the Olympics and some guy's just loafing back there? He's not even trying. No, you don't see that. <laughs> He's in the Olympics. He's given everything he has for something worth a couple hundred dollars. See, we run this race vigorously because we have something that's priceless. <laughs> Confirmation, transformation into the image of Christ. When we see him, we'll be like him in a life without sin for the rest of eternity. But now Paul turns to chapter 10. Listen. He's going to use the case of Israel. He's going to take the case of the nation of Israel, the rejection of God's mercy and grace that he so lavishly put upon them. And he's going to use this as a strong warning for, Christ, for Corinthians and for Christians today that the pursuit of idolatry will lead you into a wilderness and you will die there. He'll use Israel. And notice you'll see whom he calls our fathers. He'll use them as an example who failed to obtain the prize even when they themselves were identified in God and in His sovereign plan. But with all those special privileges given to them by God, nonetheless, the Bible says God was displeased with many of them. Verses 1 through 5 will tell us that. Verses one, uh, excuse me, six through eleven. Paul will turn and apply the faithless examples of the Old Testament Israel to the New Testament Christian, and show how still people are dying in the wilderness. And then finally, and we'll get to this next week, Paul will highlight this truth in verse twelve, and he'll state that those who think they stand should be extremely careful. One of the things that comes with the gospel is humility. You who know and practice the gospel, I imagine you're leery of your own heart. We know how deceptive our own hearts can be. We know how pride enters into the nook and crannies of our spiritual life. Paul's going to remind them, you who think you stand, be careful. And we will see evidence of that. Finally, next week we'll see that Paul reminds the believer that God has great mercy and great grace and he is available and through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ he will provide a way of escape from temptation or trial. And we'll rejoice in that. But now we turn to the text and we want to learn from past. We want to learn from others' examples. We'd be fools if we don't. And Paul is going to give us a history lesson. So I hope you have your Bibles out. I hope you know Exodus numbers or where that's at. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus numbers. You know this. Um, we're going to be in those to see this history lesson. So that we might learn how to see the graciousness of God throughout the scriptures. Now, one more thought here before we get into our points. Paul's addressing still this letter from the Corinthians. This this letter is not a gracious letter from this church. They are not seeking Paul's opinion mostly. They're mostly telling them what he they think. They're full of pride and arrogance. So Paul is responding to those who claim to be Christians, but yet they cannot deny themselves just a little bit for a weaker brother. So don't, don't miss that context. That's the overall context. And so let's concentrate on these first ten verses this morning and find this great example we see in the text. Number one, God's corporate grace and blessing does not supersede salvation by faith alone. This is a very important point I want to get across this morning. God's corporate grace and blessing does not supersede salvation by faith alone. Notice in the very first verse it says, For I I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. Now, he's referring, this four is referring back to the last word of, of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. There's the word disqualified. Paul's making, he's making it very clear. Look, I don't want to run this race, fight this fight, and in the end, not be able to control myself and be disqualified. Now, we're not talking about loss of salvation. I'll get into that in a minute. But Paul says, I don't want to be disqualified. And he's going to use that term to show that the nation of Israel, with all the grace and all the mercy God poured on them, many of them died in the wilderness disqualified. So Paul is saying, I want to revisit these Old Testament history. And though there was many Gentiles, right, in the Corinth church, they knew these stories, so he wants to revisit these, that we'd be well aware of of the truth of this, And apply it even to the current sin struggle in Corinth and in our own lives. So Paul's preparing the Corinthians to hear old stories in new ways. And I hope that happens today. Old stories. But notice there's also a sense of urgency here. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. There's there's a sense of urgency. There's a tone in this text. Pay attention. Listen up. Now, he uses the term our fathers. Notice that in verse 1 there. This is a referral to those who... God showed favor and grace to, and as He formally blessed this nation of Israel. And, and you'll see over and over, and it doesn't hard to read through the Pentateuch and see how God was so gracious to this nation. But this does not mean that all of Israel is God's children. Paul later wrote, writes in Romans chapter 9, for they are not all Israel who are descendants from Israel, verse 6, verse 7, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. That is, it is not the children of flesh who are the children of God. And that's such an important statement. You can never become a child of God through your own flesh, either by um, being born into the family of God or willing yourself into the family of God. But the children of promise, they are the ones regarded as disciples. And the children promise of promise have always clear. They're the ones who hold on to the truth of God's word. They're the ones that have had a changed heart, a changed mind, resulting in a changed life that pursues the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, though God had blessed this nation and showed his grace and protection on them, we'll see that over time, many were exposed not to be his true children. Now, this relates to Corinth, right? These people heard the gospel. Paul was there with them for a year and a half. He brought in some of his other men to help and work in that. But now as time has gone, many of them have migrated into bad examples following false doctrine and mostly just consumed with their own self-confidence and their own self-works. And now the battlefield is starting to show victims. Look at verse 5 real quick. Because this is where self-confidence, this is where... uh, Those whose confidence isn't completely in Christ can land you. Look at verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them. Isn't that interesting? It's talking about the Old Testament saints. With most of them, God was not well pleased. For they were laid low in the wilderness. Even with... Even though all, not all Israel is the descendants of Israel, meaning not all chul, true children of God, Paul speaks of the nation and of Israel in a corporate sense here, and this is the point. He's speaking of them as a corporate sense, seeing the grace of God, much like he sees Riverbend as his church, he, he, the headship of Jesus Christ oversees this church, but it doesn't mean that everybody in this building and everybody who belongs or calls themselves this church is saved. You're not saved because you come to Riverbend. And we see that understanding here. Not all Israel was Israel. Now notice, we see this. Notice he uses the word all five times in the first four verses. So he's emphasizing this oneness of the nation of Israel under the headship of Moses. And Paul's going to apply this to the oneship of the church as he goes on through this uh, letter. There's a oneness under the headship of Jesus Christ. And he's going to show that... There are others that just come along for the ride, and in the end, there'll be examples. Now, his goal is to show that not everyone who claims Jesus is a follower of Jesus. Let me be clear here. If you're truly a child of God, you'll humble yourself to the Word of God. You'll humble yourself to the lordship of Jesus Christ. It may not be perfect, right? None of us are. There's struggles that may come. But I promise you, if God has truly redeemed you, if he's, by his spirit, uh, plunged the gospel into your heart and soul, Jesus is your Lord. And you bend your knee to him. Paul's trying to expose this. And even though we may go through temptation and trials, he will provide an escape for those that are his true children. Now notice Paul is going to go through this list of great blessings. He's going to show this is the greatness of God, this is the kindness of God upon a bunch of people who we're not even sure are in the faith. In fact, we know by verse 5, many of them he was displeased with and they died in the wilderness. But let me affirm I, before we go, I run in my notes this. Let's, let's affirm there is not a loss of salvation. There's no loss of salvation. That's not what the Bible's talking about here. Many have come to this conclusion in this text, but but the scriptures are clear that salvation cannot be lost if God Himself has granted it through Christ alone. Jesus promises you in 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 John chapter six that he, he'll never lose any that the Father has given to him. And so salvation, if it's of God, cannot be lost. Now, if it's of you, if you take full responsibility for, for choosing and living some kind of righteous life and bringing yourself before God, oh, you'll go out from us because you were never part of us. See, there's a great difference theres in there, isn't there? 1 John 2, 19. And though you may partake in some facet of the grace of God, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 says, some have even tasted the Spirit Spirits work in others, and yet they leave. They go out, and the Lord exposes them. And so uh, this passage is is a challenging passage because he's going to go back into the history and show how much he's given to this nation, and yet so many died in the wilderness. Now listen, we're at our most vulnerable point is when we hear God's word and we apply it to someone else. How many times have you been in a sermon, and you go, man, I wish so-and-so was here. <laughs> if only they were here. No, no. That, that's a dangerous place to be. You're vulnerable when you hear God's word, but you don't apply it to your own heart, and you, you only think others should obey it. See, that leads to idolatry, and pretty soon there's scattered bodies in the wilderness, and this is exactly what happened to the nation. And this leads to the abuse of grace. At first, Paul's going to remind the Corinthians how God freed the nation, how he was so gracious. Look at A here in our outline. Here's a history lesson, the gift of freedom. Notice at the end of verse 1, he says that our, our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. You know, what does that mean? Well, he's referring to Exodus chapter 13. And if you have your Bible, turn back to Exodus 13. Please bring your Bibles to this church. We love to use them. Um, But Exodus 13, let's see what this means. We've got to understand this great statement. Our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. I'm just going to pick out portions of scriptures to help us get our mind around what's going on. We'll start in verse 20 through 22. And then they set out from Sokoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. Verse 21, Exodus chapter 12. And the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on their way, and a pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. Listen to this. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before his people. After God graciously used Joseph with a nation that was already settled, now in 70 men with Jacob as the head of that in Israel, the Pharaoh died and Pharaohs arose who did not know the God of Joseph. And for 400 years, the nation of Israel suffered under these Pharaohs. They suffered great abuse, abuse that I'm not sure we can get our mind around. But God sends Moses. He is a type. He's sent to bring freedom to these people. And God uses them. And in that process, you know, he dumps 10 plagues upon the nation of Egypt. And the final plague was the blood of the Lamb. And that secured their freedom. Isn't that beautiful? So crystal-centric. Can't you see that? The nation is then led miraculously out of Egypt they're given gifts. They go out far more wealthy than they came in. And they're brought through the Red Sea with the greatest war machine on their heels. If you're still in Exodus, turn to verse chapter 14 and pick up the view of what's going on now. Exodus 14:29. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel corporately here. This is not individual faith. God's never changed the way people come to Him. They come through faith alone. But here He corporately saved this nation, nation of Israel the day that day from the hand of the egyptian and the israelites saw the egyptians dead on the seashore and when Israel saw the great power which the lord had used against the egyptians the people feared the lord and they believed in the lord and in his servant moses so god drowns the enemies and washes them up at their feet on the shores of the red sea And doubtlessly before this, they're wondering, how is God going to get us to this promised land? How are we going to travel? How are we going to be protected? And he says, don't worry about it. I have a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He gave them this. No matter how they disobeyed, that pillar of of, of cloud and fire remained with them year after year after year in their obedience to prove that God was a faithful present God with them despite their wickedness. What a great example of the grace of God. I believe it's important to understand that the nation was not saved corporately here. The Bible's not saying that. Just because they followed some pillar, some miraculous thing, a pillar of cloud or by fire, but Each one is truly saved because they put faith in God alone. There's those there. We find them in Hebrews 11. There's those there who who believed in God that He would deliver them. Their faith was in God. In God alone. The rest died and now are separated from God. See, the book of Exodus reminds us that God was calling His chosen nation. And it was filled with both believers and unbelievers. That's why it's corporate. There's, there's all kinds. Remember the Bible tells us that Egyptians and other nations got out with the nation of Israel. They were full of all kinds of different people, but among them were believers and unbelievers. It's very evident in the text. And even though they were brought out of slavery and delivered, many did not believe. See, a nation here, got, what Paul is doing is trying to show the faithful witness of a God who loves his people. And Paul's using this to teach the Corinthians to run the race. There's many who say they're running. There's many who say they have faith. But in the end, they really don't believe their faith is in themselves. And they become disqualified. Instead of using their freedom to obey God and worship and find great joy. And love Christ, His word, and one another. They find themselves caught in idolatry, immorality, and rebelliousness. All because of self-confidence. So Paul's saying to the Corinth church, don't let this happen to you, what happened to the nation. It is a strong warning. He's using the grace of God to do it. B, underneath this, unity and identity with God through Moses. Notice verse 2 in our text. Here the Bible says, all were baptized into Moses, into the cloud and in the sea. Now, Through Moses, God was with the entire nation. We have to understand this representation of Moses here. And his presence was in their midst, guiding and protecting them, using Moses as his leader, but dispensing great mercy and grace. And this nation, think about them. They left. God provided the freedom. They voluntarily and unconditionally placed themselves under the leadership, the headship of Moses. And they followed that's that idea of being baptized here. We think we automatically come to our baptism. We think of water and all of that. Here they immerse themselves. They identified themselves with their leader, Moses. That's what the Bible's trying to teach you. Just as you and I in this New Testament time, in this age where God has been gathering and, and collecting the church from every tribe, tongue, and nation, we identify in Jesus Christ. If you're a believer, the Lord does not look, you, look at you in any other way, but He sees you immersed in His Son. This is the idea here. See, many believe that this is some kind of reference to God ceremonially identifying the entire nation of Israel as being saved, but that's not the case. Because Paul says not all Israel are the children of God. In the church age... When someone's baptized publicly, they're, they're publicly saying, well, we're going to see this. I, I know we have baptisms coming. We have, I think, one in October. Uh, is that correct? Um, and there's people that are going to stand in the waters of baptism, and they're going to say, look, now I belong to the Lord. I used to not belong to him. I was identified with the world and my sin. That was, all, that was how I identified myself, but now I identify myself in Jesus Christ. So we know water baptism is an outward sign of something spiritually that took place by the supernatural work of God. So here, as he uses this word baptism, we understand that it represents a union with God through Moses at that time. But Moses was a type. He's not the real thing. (laughs) He was leading them. He was true to God. He was faithful to God, but he couldn't save them. It was only those like Moses and others who believed in faith. So in a sense, Moses is kind of like a John the Baptist, isn't he? He's a forerunner. He's, he's leading people. He's pointing to something greater. That's what Moses' job. There's something greater than you. There's something greater than me. And at that point, they knew they needed to put their faith in God alone, that he would sacrifice for them, that he would cause a way for them to be delivered from their own sin. See, Moses was a shadow of something greater to come. So God here gives graciously gives Israel everything they need to put their faith in them and they grumble and put their faith in their same confidence and they reject the grace of God. Well, God doesn't end there. We see, uh, letter C here, the gracious provision of God. Look at verses 3 and 4. God graciously provides for his people. Verse 3, and all, there's I think the fourth all, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now turn back with me to Exodus chapter 16. I want you to see this. I love preaching in the Old Testament because I love seeing Christ in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 16 The whole congregation, verse 2, of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the sons of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. Now let's stop right there. They know what the Lord's hand did. It slaughtered the entire firstborn of the Egyptian race, along with the firstborn of all cattle and beasts. And yet they, they're so grumbling, their hearts are so hard against the grace of God, they have proven themselves, not their faith in God. Their faith is in themselves. Their faith was maybe in Moses too much, and Moses, they believe, is failing them. So they said, look, we'd rather have been slaughtered by the hand of God. This is faithlessness, isn't it? Notice what they hold back to. When we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this Wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. I'm done with them right there. <laughs> they should be glad I'm not God. Verse 4 Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. I mean, all of us are kind of nodding our head a little bit, aren't you? He's done so much for them. Split seas, drown their enemies by this time, quench their thirst from a rock. And he says, look, I'm going to rain bread from heaven. We know what that's going to picture later. And the people shall go out and gather days, a day's portion every day that I might test them to whether or not they will walk in my instructions. He's going to test them to see if their faith is in God or their faith is in that bread, right? And faith in a full belly. Look at verses 14 and 15. 15. When the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. And when the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? But they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Drop down to verse 35. The sons of Israel ate manna for 40 years until they came Into an inhabited land. They ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. You know, we could all drive out to Nevada and don't take anything with us and see how we do. (laughs) I've been there, it's not easy. God graciously provided it for these people. And as you turn back to 1 Corinthians 10 3, you begin to understand that. That Paul is saying that they all ate the same spiritual food. There's a bigger picture here. They all drank a spiritual drink. There's a bigger picture than what they want to focus on because they don't have faith. And he's clarifying that God was not working individually, but he's working corporately to show his grace on this nation. And the reason for the wording of this statement is because most of them did not place their faith in God alone. So Paul is speaking on the, uh, about the source of the spiritual food. That's what he's going to. Remember, they, they, they couldn't get this. They come to Jesus and they say, well, Moses gave us bread. And Jesus says, first of all, Moses didn't give you bread. God did. And I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of heaven. See, when you don't think in your faith, is it in God alone, in Christ alone, you're consumed with your own thoughts of where things come from. And yes, God was gracious. He physically strengthened the Israelites through this manna and this water that flowed from the rock. And yes, there were true believers like Moses and others who God spiritually strengthened for this task. But then Paul makes this (laughs) phenomenal statement. Look at this, verse 4. And the rock was Christ. And the rock was Christ. Even at the time of Exodus, the Messiah, the Christ, was graciously providing for them, wasn't he? If Paul says that the rock is Christ, it tells us that the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ was already at work providing for them as a future example of that he can give living water that causes you never to thirst again. But all they had to do, all they had to do is just say, God, thank you. Thank you. You're gracious to us. Our faith is in you. You know what's best. We'll follow you. It's the time of the first century. I think this is one of the things Paul's taking on in this section is the, blue, the, Jesus, the Jews believe that the rock actually kind of followed them along. They really believe that. They believe the rock just went everywhere they went. And I think Paul's taken this on. I think he's taken on this giant theological correction here reminding them that yes, there was a rock and, and God sustained the nation of Israel with physical water, but that rock was not a physical rock just for mere water. That rock was a spiritual rock and it was Christ. And long, this long awaited Messiah was there even then providing what the nation needed. And that's what the Messiah does. The Messiah provides living water. And all of this is looking forward as a biblical theology is all pointing to this greater one, the Lord Jesus Christ. But now think about this, brothers and sisters, this Christ that Paul says is the rock in the wilderness. He's come to earth, he's died, he's resurrected, and he's providing living water that quenches the internal thirst of sinful man. Praise the Lord, ain't it? And I pray you've drank of it. There's some interesting terminology in this verse we usually find the word petros to deal with rock here. But it's more the idea of petra, which is a little bit of a different meaning. It's, it's, it means the idea of bedrock and massive. And, and this, so this is some kind of living rock that comes. So God has used a rock to provide physical water from the nation. I, I completely believe that. It's the supernatural work of God. He did strike that rock and water came out of it. But there's such a bigger picture here. He's trying to remind the Corinthians and Christians today that there is a massive, spiritual, living, supernatural rock. And his name is Jesus. And when you drink from him, you'll never thirst again. And it'll change the way you think. It'll change the way you act. It'll change the way you walk. It'll change the way you, you interact with one another. He'll change everything about you. Because he's taken your cravings of the world away. And you have new life. You have new life. See, a message like this is for us to go. Is there life in there? See, that's what he's trying to do with the Corinthians. Is there life in there? Has the supernatural work of the Lord Jesus Christ and that forever death and resurrection that beat our sins, Satan and death. Is it, is it living in you? They were struggling. Don't you love the story of John 4? We talked about this camp. Kids, they love this message. I I got so much feedback from this. You have this woman who comes to this well. Her life is a disaster. The world has completely shredded her. She can't even come to the well because if she comes in the morning, all the women are there, and she's the top of conversations because she's probably slept with some of her husbands. Who knows what problems else this woman had. She would have been on every psychedelic drug we have today if she was in our day. She's a mess. Jesus says, I got water you'll never need to come back here for. Well, give it to me because I don't want to come back here because those women are going to be here. No clue. If it isn't for Jesus, that woman dies in the wilderness, isn't it? She dies in the wilderness of the world and the sin that she was in. But you know Jesus had something greater. He had a divine meeting with her. He, he, I mean, he goes against culture and religions. And he goes right through all that because he has a divine meeting with her. Don't tell me God isn't sovereign when he saved you. And there he gives her living water and she becomes a missionary. And she cannot wait to tell at least someone will who will hear. Manna, bread from heaven. See, that's what the Jews wanted. They wanted to, hey, let's just go back to the old days. You mean the old days when we all died in the wilderness? Yeah, let's go back to that. Jesus, you give us bread, you heal all our sick, you be our welfare program, we'll make you king, we'll get rid of the Romans, and it'll all be good. Meanwhile, they all die and go to hell because Jesus is in the sacrifice for them. But that's what people settle for. They settle for the less. Just be our welfare program, Jesus. Heal our sick, feed, fill our bellies. Don't make us come back to this well again, Conquer our enemies and we'll be good. People do this all the time. And they die in the wilderness eternally separated from God. Paul's pushing this illustration. He's pushing this hard to help this, this church that's struggling through these three illustrations to understand there is a privilege and witness firsthand of the grace of God that people will go through. They'll they'll actually see the hand of God work, but their pride and their arrogance and their lack of faith will reject the grace of God and they'll go on their own strength and die in the wilderness. In the end, they're disqualified. Well, to sum up, in Exodus 17, the rock is struck. The water of this pre-incarnate Christ comes gushing out, in a sense. In the Old Testament, the people of God underwent a baptism. They are identified in the hope of Christ and the hope of what God was going to do. But in the New Testament, the uh, people undergo a baptism. They're identified and immersed in Jesus Christ in remembrance of what he's done. And then in the Old Testament, people ate and drank. They ate in hope of Christ that God would... God would finish this, Lord, that the sacrificial system would lead to their permanent forgiveness. That God had laid down was pointing to something. But in the New Testament, we eat and drink in a relationship with Christ, looking back in remembrance of what He's done. And so I think John, excuse me, Paul is telling, look, this is this is all the same focus. It's on Christ. And the Old Testament saints missed the grace of God and died in the wilderness. Look, you can't help but understand if you miss the grace of God, you'll abuse the grace of God. And that's what happens. Second thought this morning. Yikes. The deadly reality of life without saving faith. I couldn't help but think of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. You know this verse. Let me read it to you. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. That's God. For He, that's the person who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. See, verse 5 is the opposite of this hall of faith. Look at verse 5. Never left with most of them. God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, clearly, we've understood that Israel shared in this common blessing of freedom. They were freed from their slavery. They were identified in Moses as as God's children, God's nation, corporately. And then he graciously provided for them. We see that. But Paul says, nevertheless, most of them God was displeased with. I think that's an understatement in some sense. Look at Numbers chapter 14. I told you keep your finger there. Numbers 14. Verse 29. I picked verses that kind of sum things up. Your corpses will fall in the wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years older and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall come into the land in which I swore to settle you Surely you shall not come into a land which I swore to you that you'll settle in, except two men, right? Caleb and Joshua. Verse 31 Your children, however, whom you said would become a prey, I will bring them in, and they will know the land which you rejected. Verse 32 But as for you, look at this your corpses will fall in the wilderness. So outside of Joshua and Caleb, all those over the age of 20, they die off in the wilderness. There are great numbers of people who presumed on the grace of God, and now he's turning his attention back to Corinth. In the case of Corinth, many of you are like this today. You heard the message of the gospel, you're like the seed that spurts up in the rocky ground or, or um, in the thin soils and on the roads and, and where the birds come, and you, 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 you sprung up, but yet you have no faith. Jesus told the Pharisees and many others listening on in Matthew 7:21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. That was all the Jews thought about was the kingdom of God. we got to get to the kingdom of God. we got to get there. We've got to be there. Even the disciples couldn't help but think who's going to be on the left and right, who's going to have the authority and power. He says, look at this. You're not going to go there. Not all the people who call me Lord and Master will go there. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, will enter. And you go, what is the will of the Father? To believe in Jesus. To believe that God can miraculously, supernaturally provide salvation to you through his Son alone. That's, that's faith. And he even grants you that faith. And like Old Testament Israel, we too receive this freedom from slavery. I, I love to think about it. I think I love teaching. I, we've already been through the book of Exodus on Wednesday night, but I love that because we found such great illustrations of us coming out of sin. Completely captive to slavery of sin, right? He brought us out. And we too have been given this new identification in Christ. God always looks at it as Son. We too have freely drunk of the living waters of Christ. We've been satisfied in Jesus. He is the bread of life. But the Bible says some hear, few believe. And yet many, I think, are like this Old Testament Israel. Church in America is struggling, isn't it? We laugh at a justice who can't define a woman. Church in America is having a hard time defining marriage. We can't look at the simple instruction of God created man, male, and female. We can't look at the simple instruction of Jesus Christ who says, He created them in His image. Don't you dare touch what He's done. See, maybe maybe this is an important message for the Church of America today. If the Lord was to return, how many would die in the wilderness? How many would say, Lord, Lord, I've done these things in your name, but he'll say, I never knew you. By now, you would think that the Corinthian church was starting to put two and two together, you would think. And I think that reason... is is that Christians can often sit around church and grow old and cold. Happens all the time. Becomes a way of life. What do you do on Sundays go to church? See, we're attenders, not worshipers. And we may go through this external rite that is offered in some spiritual framework found at church. We may even crack our Bibles a time or two, not on Sunday. And we may attend to certain issues that are going on in the church or something like that. We may even be stimulated at a good message that, that would stir us fleshly a little bit or our emotions. And yet the Bible says many, he will say, I never knew you. So this is hitting home with this Corinth church. And those of us who are sitting here saying, oh, well, you know, Scott, this really isn't for me. Well, I got news for you warnings and examples are for those who don't think they're for them. <laughs> that's what God does. See, the guy who's, who looks at this or the gal who hears this and goes, oh, Lord, I don't want to fail you. I, I want to finish the race. I want to fight the good fight. I, I want to stay in. And, oh, God, strengthen me, cause me to keep my eyes on you. That's, that's not the person this is addressed to, <laughs> In a sense, to so this guy, see, so he doesn't think he's going to fall. And Paul is going to say in verse 12, Oh, you who think you stand, you better take heed. Calvin right in on this. Passage said this, the ancient people were provided with the same benefits as we are, shared in the same sacrament, so that through them we might not imagine that trusting in some special privilege we would be exempt from the punishment what they undergo the Bible's telling us, look, they all drank of the same drink. They ate of the same thing. They're spiritually. They had everything. God was showing grace. He was leading them to the promised land. He was showing them. He provided a sacrificial system where they could be right with God, though it was temporary till Christ come. He was so gracious to them. And in the end, all of that spiritual blessing and grace and knowledge that He gave, they rejected it and died in the wilderness. And it's a warning, a strong one. Notice in verse 5, this term, this it's, it's one word. We're laid low in the Greek. It has the idea of strewn about. It means spread all over. Almost seven years ago, Gene and I and Cannon were coming across the country to move to become the teaching pastor here. And we stopped at the battlefield of Chickamauga, just on the border of Tennessee and Georgia. And I'll never forget that day. I stood on that ground right there and I thought, A hundred and. 50 years ago or more, 10,000 bodies laid on that battlefield. I mean, that's overwhelming, right? And then you start to think about the nation of Israel. We're talking millions of people by this time. And all of them over the age of 20 die. You imagine the funerals that happened every day for 20 years. Because they looked at the grace of God, and all they could see is their own selfish desires. Look, brothers and sisters, friends, that is the mark of a changed soul. We go through problems. I am not saying that this life is not easy. It is hard at times, right? We suffer in this fallen world. We bring suffering to ourselves sometimes. It is not easy. But your hope is in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and it sustains you through the most difficult things, doesn't it? It's a mark of a believer. So you're not just playing around with Jesus. See, Israel had the gracious blessing of freedom, immersion, provision, and they laid disqualified in the wilderness. They abused the grace of God through their self-centered, overconfidence, man-centered desires that led them to death. And that's what it does. And and look, I'm, I'm passionate about this because I know that's where I was going if it was not for the grace of God. And you too. That's why we sing the way we sing in this church, preach the way we preach, disciple the way we disciple, start seminaries and Bible schools and missions around the world because this gospel just captures us because we know where we were going without it. Amen? Look at verse 6. Now these things happen as an example for us so that we would not crave evil things as they craved. See, Paul has shown the experience that the nation of Israel was privileged by the grace of God, and now he's going to describe their poor example. We've already described some of it, but notice he says, now these things happen for example for us. So these following verses here that he is going to give are this graphic example of their demise. They're for us. And notice the language in verse 6, this crave, or your Bible might translate it desire, desire this this word gives the understanding of an overwhelming irresistible strong impulse to act contrary to the to the word of god do you have a craving that you can't control for evil and he's going to start listing some so buckle up i don't know if i'm going to get to it or not but i'm not But it's a good thought, isn't it? Think through this. Do you still have a craving for evil? I remember as a young man, I was striving to follow God. I knew I had a calling in my life, but there were still things that, there were cravings in there. They were pulling me to sinful things. We didn't have phones with all that stuff on. I can imagine what that could have done to me. But those things are still readily available. You know it, men of my generation. And I remember begging God that he would be more glorious to me than those cravings and those desires and asking him to give victory over that. And he provides way out of those temptations and trials. Verse 13 tells us that. Those that are his know this. And certainly, brothers and sisters, you can be tempted, but that's different than an ongoing, craving, rebellious desire for evil. And some of you have that still and you've not been saved. And you're not free from that. And it'll leave you in the wilderness, disqualified and dead. Paul doesn't want this to happen to Christ's church. So this is a description of those who don't have the Spirit of God, isn't it? Do you remember before you were saved? And this is one of the things we have to be careful. We try to sometimes get unsaved people to act like saved people. It's such a disservice to them. They have no Spirit of God. So what happens is if you don't have the spirit of God, you hold on to your morals. And we've seen this in our own children. We've seen this in people who were raised here in other churches. Their morals hang on, they hang on, they hang on. They get barely through university and finally those morals can't hold them anymore and they're gone. And you go, what happened to that kid that had such good parents? They were raised in our youth. They were this and that. There's no spirit. Their morals held them as long as it could. But in the end, those moral- morals failed them. Because the morals can't do what the spirit does. The spirit gives life. Not just at salvation, but he continues to give life day in and day out. And you begin to look at this list that we'll see next week. Idolatry, immorality, testing of God, and grumbling. He'll give you victory over those things. Do you still crave it? So ask yourself this question. Is the spirit quenched? Quenched? That's for a believer. Paul told the Thessalonican church, don't quench the Spirit. Don't do it. You're going to pay dearly. Or you quench Him by shoving Him into a room and said, don't come out till Sunday morning at 9 or if I'm tired at 10.30. There's a shot at all you that don't come to Bible studies. Anyway, take that for what it's worth. But then He comes out, right? We walk in. We've been arguing and fighting with our spouse. We've... Not had a good week, and someone says, how are you doing? I'm doing great, liar. You know this. It's the Spirit free in your life. Good Bible teaching. Baptistic church has got to teach on the Spirit, don't we? He's not some wild guy out doing his own thing out there. He's spotlighting the gospel and Jesus in your life to make us and cause us and give us a desire to walk with him. That's what he does. Why are we quenching him? He'll make you love someone you never thought you could love. He'll make you give things up that you never thought you could give up because he's going to put that focus right on the glorious person of Jesus Christ and his word. There's a spirit there. but As if there's no spirit, your morals will not get you into heaven. And though Israel was shown so much grace here as we finish this this morning, most of them, their hearts were set on evil. I'm going to show you next week passage after passage of how they set their hearts on evil in the face of a God who was providing a cloud and a pillar of fire and bread coming out of heaven and water flowing from rocks and dead enemies. They grumbled and, and, and got themselves entangled in gross immorality right in his face. And they died. They died in the wilderness. So the challenge to us today is, is our hearts and our hearts do we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ or are our hearts disqualifying us? We're not truly His. And listen, friend, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, bow your knee. Tell Him you can't even do it on your own. Tell God you're going to have to do something I can't do. That's how you get saved. And He'll break your hard heart. He'll crush that thing. He'll take out that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and you'll live again. You'll, you'll have freedom from your sin. And to the brother or sister and to myself who feel our hearts sometimes growing cold, examine your life. Has the Spirit been quenched? Is He free to do the purposes of God in your life no matter what they are? Stay in this, leave this, do this. Those difficult things that Scripture often tells us to do in difficult circumstances, if you're quenching the Spirit, you'll never find that peace that God has for you. And so I challenge you this morning and take a hard look at things in your life. Are these things contrary to the life-giving work of the Spirit? Father in heaven, You know my intentions were to go farther in this text, but this is as far as I got. And we're overwhelmed by the grace that You poured out on this nation. You called them Your people. You called them Your children. You corporately shared grace on them in such a phenomenal way. And yet, just because we're part of a crowd doesn't mean we're part of the redeemed. There is a clear individualistic saving work that the Spirit does. It is then where He baptizes us, He merges us into Jesus Christ, Lord, and we know that. And so I pray for students and young people in this building who have been writing the shirt tales of their parents or the youth ministry. I pray, Lord, that you would plunge faith in their hearts, that you would give them that gift of grace and faith that's not of themselves, lest they could stand before you and boast someday. But they would see that this was a gracious gift that you've given them, and they would become worshipers. Lord, I pray for the adult that's in this room that has just been going through the motions. Maybe they just hope when they die they're not going to go to hell. They're not going to get what they know they deserve and they've been just kind of hanging around the pack God I pray that you would pierce their hearts with truth today and give them this living water let them be satisfied on Lord Jesus Christ and let them know that you're pleased with them as you place your spirit in them at salvation oh God do a work that we can't we give You praise and glory for us. Lord, we pray for our church. We pray that we would be a very shining, bright, humble, but loving church that proudly spotlights Jesus Christ and His Word and all that we do. Cause us to love one another. Heal marriages. Heal, heal friendships. Give victory over immorality. Hard-heartedness, Lord. Do this for your glory. We'll give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.